Hi, welcome to 1001 Books, the podcast where we read the 1001 books the experts say you're supposed to read before you die and decide if they are really worth your time. I'm Chelsea, a lover of all things Harry Potter, and any book that's going to make me cry. Also, I haven't been reading a ton of those lately. Lately, I've been into just old-fashioned, young adult, new adult fantasy. It's my current obsession. So there's that. Nice. Uh, And I'm Nicole, also a lover of Harry Potter and of every historical fiction book I can get my hands on. But also, ironically, I feel like since I've started saying that in the podcast, I haven't read hardly any historical fiction. Uh, And I've been reading all over the map other stuff. But that's where my heart of hearts lies, is within historical fiction. (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's hard when you get on a... I feel like we're dedicating ourselves like this is what I read. And then I'm like, I haven't brought up a book in that genre in months. (laughs) Right. It's true. It's true. All right. So what did we read this week? Besides this podcast book we're going to talk about today, I also listened to an audio book called um, Wishful Drinking by Carrie Fisher. And it was and she was the narrator. It was really short and it was hilarious. It was so good. And I'm not even like a big Star Wars fan at all, uh-huh. and I so I didn't really know anything about her. And but it was great, and it was it was a little bit weird because she was 52 when she was rewriting that, and she's talking about her future, and you know that she died she's when died. she was 60. Yeah. So, that, but it was still really funny and great. What else have you been reading? I um have not read very much at all because it was the first week of school, but I did start. Spinning Silver by Naomi Novik. Um, oh, good, because I, then I can read it. <laughs> I offered to let you take it. I know. It. I just haven't had time. Um, <laughs> and it is by the same author. She wrote the Temperare, Dragons of Temperare. There's a dragon series she's wrote, oh. but I haven't read those. She wrote Uprooted, which, which is a book love. I really love. Yeah. And this book, I'm only 40 pages in, because again, school, but I... Just felt an immediate like, oh, this is a home kind of book. Yeah. Um. So I'm really excited about it, and I got, uh, spoilers. I got next week's book on audiobook solely so I could read this at home. <laughs> I was like, I don't want to have to read next week's book. I'm gonna listen to it so I can read this other book I really want to read instead. <laughs> yeah, it's true that I. So I just recently bought a place to live, and so this month, for the next several weeks, I'm in full remodel mode which means that the only books I'm going to get through are the ones for the podcast and anything that I can get on audio while I'm painting and scrubbing off wallpaper and all sorts of fun stuff (laughs) and packing um but I am I feel like I've I had like 10 things come to the library in the last week and I just let them go because I was like I can't do it it won't make it won't be fun it'll feel stressful to have those Mm -hmm. even though they're books I really want to read they just have to wait until after this move is over (laughs) I know I tried something this week um and the last, these first days of school that I've really been liking, um, my fiance, he leaves the house an hour before I need to. And I oftentimes just lay there and I'll go back to sleep, but then I'll be like running around the house before I need to leave. And so every day since school started, I've tried really hard. I'm going to read for 20 minutes right when he leaves. I'm going to get ready for 20 minutes and then I'm going to clean up the house for like 20 minutes. And Mm -hmm. I actually think it's really good for me to do that because it's starting, I'm not just laying in bed half sleeping where you like finally fall all the way to sleep and you have to get back up again. Um, yeah. And it's making sure I'm reading some during these first weeks of school, which I never do. It's how I finished most of this book. It's how I started some of that Spinning Silver book or this week's book is how I finished it and how I started Spinning Silver. Just like 
I'm only going to do it in 20 minute sections. But that's going to be what it is. <laughs> I think that's, that's nice. Totally fine. And then you're like, you're doing something that you like and then falling off with doing a chore. Mm-hmm. So you're like, you're, you're pairing two activities. I read um, Gretchen Rubin's book, who wrote The Happiness Project. Uh-huh. She wrote another book called Better Than Before, which is about how to achieve any type of goal. And mm-hmm. she gives all these strategies. And one of them is to pair a boring or a disliked activity with something you like. So, um, and so I like that. You're, that's exactly what you're doing. You're reading and then you're doing it. But they uh-huh. always go together because they're in the same hour. Yeah. So it's a good So strategy. we'll see if it lasts into the school year as I get more tired and it gets darker out. Yeah. It's already now it's starting to be dark at 8 p.m. And I'm like, oh, it's coming. Before you know, it's going to be dark at 4. I know. That's <laughs> the worst when you leave in the dark and you get home in the dark. I know. If we just lived like 400 miles south of here, we wouldn't have that. I you know. know? Uh, what it's are you going to do? Problem. We have a lot. There's a lot of other good things about living here. Anyways, should we, you mentioned this week's book. This yes. week's book is called Mao the Second um, by Don DeLillo. He's an American writer, and it was published in 1991. And it's just about 240 pages. And this is our 29th book. Yay! Um, almost at 3%. We've made like a dent-ish. Yes. So if you had to describe this book in one word, what would it be? I said that this book would be publicized isolation. Oh, a bit of a contradiction in terms. Karen. Yeah. What was yours? Um, my word is delusions of grandeur. Okay. So a quick plot of this book in one sentence is that recluse author Bill Gray believes that terrorists are replacing writers as the main creators and transformers of society. So he leaves his isolation to try to try to save a hostage in Beirut. Mm-hmm. Beirut. Beirut. Beirut, I think. Yeah. Um, so we're going to get more into the plot of this book. So if you want to skip those spoilers and read this book first, you can come back to us then and you can see a time in the show notes when we switch off talking about the book and on to our next subject. So if you want to tune back in after our spoilers, we will be talking about a Chinese-American author that we know and love. And in her story, she touches on the Chinese-American immigration experience and on Maoism. And so we're just kind of going to discuss her books and what we liked about them and what we know about them um, as kind of like a point study, I guess, on the differences. I don't know. I'm just on something that's related. Yes. Book. Yeah. So we're trying a new thing where we're going to try every once in a while to relate our end of point topic to our book itself because it's hard to think of a new <laughs> book related trivia question. Trivia thing each week. And so it'll be um, a way to keep it more on topic and so yes. that we're not scrambling. So yes. we'll see how it goes. All right. Let us know. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get into Mal the Second. Um, I don't feel like there's a lot more to say about the plot. Um, um, I do think that there's quite a bit in here about, um, one of the side characters is a member of the Moonies, the Moonies cults. Yeah. What do they actually like to be called? I don't know. I don't know either. The Universalist Church or something like that. The Moonies cult. And so it opens up with a scene of a Mooney wedding ceremony. Like a mass wedding where thousands of people are marrying strangers all at the same time. Yeah, and her her viewpoint, this book kind of switches viewpoints a lot, and her viewpoint is kind of woven in 
Yeah. What's crazy is that when we started the book, I read that it's like the preface. I read mm-hmm. that and I was like, oh, this is a post-apocalyptic novel where yeah. um, where like a new figure that's exactly like Mao has risen to authority and the people of the world are worshiping him. And then I was and then I was like, you start get to chapter one and it's about something completely separate. Yeah, completely and then I was like and then I started doing some like Wikipedia and I was like, oh, no, this is like a real religion. That mm-hmm. was at its height in like the 70s and 80s, you know, and and it's just like it's not it's that this just happened like in the current times like it, it and it, but it really felt post apocalyptic and like weird and scary and bizarre. Yeah, um, one of the like high things of this religion was that they did these giant marriage ceremonies where thousands of couples who did not know each other mm-hmm. would come together and the the leader of the cult yeah. would, um, I feel bad saying cult. It's a very cultish religion. <laughs> I think it's actually classified as a cult at this point. So, um, if it's not, I'm sorry. So the leader would like randomly be like, you, you're going to marry her. And they were get married. Even if they didn't speak the same first Even language. If they didn't speak the, and quite often that happened because one of the points was that they wanted to make a world religion. And so it was really a lot of, um, Inner race, inner nationality. nationality thank you. I was trying to think of that word. Um, marriages, and then they would go separate ways for up to six months as part of their like journey to be a couple and not speak to each other. It was weird. Yeah, and, and, really and that's happened. just like a minor point in the book, but I would say it sets the stage. I think the reason to include it is that I think all the main characters have cultish tendencies or the tendency to want to believe in a supreme figure on earth yeah um in one form or another but they're all kind of doing the same thing where they and the kind of a big point in the book is that some people think that society would be better if it was uh there was one supreme leader and everyone believed in them mindlessly and some people don't think that yeah and so that is the woman's um karen karen her like thing that she has the supreme belief in um scott who is the author's assistant his supreme belief is in the author himself mm-hmm. um which adds some interesting intricacies and then britta who's is a the, photographer the who's photographer. come to take pictures of the reclusive author i feel like she her like thing is like believing in like the power of art to still have an effect on the world yes and so yeah. and she likes to photograph Authors. Authors, because they're making that art and their their face isn't seen. And if you can't see their face, you don't really know the story behind right. their books. And so everybody, that was where I was kind of going, everybody in this book kind of has an obsession. Right. And so the book switches viewpoints centering all around Bill's story, but like it circles around what's going on with them, the other characters at certain points. And it's always more focused on whatever their obsessive thing is. Yeah. Um, so, so I have to say that I, this book, I felt like, even though I, from the because I was like weirded out by the beginning, because I thought it was gonna be a totally different book than it turned out being, mm-hmm. but it, I feel like it gave me a lot to think about. Like I was using markers and I was like, no, I have to write stuff down because I can't capture all the things that this book is trying to say, even though I don't know if I thought the points were very good ones, but it was, it's definitely a deep dive mm-hmm. into like find the theme, find the tone. Um, is it, is the author in the character a representation of the real life author? Like it's, it's, a it's, um, and what, from what I understand about reading about this author online, that all his books are like this. They're not so much about the story, but they're like 
there's like supposed to be deep meaning mm-hmm. if you really dig down into it that's like kind of mysterious and hard to pin down and that's definitely how this book was <laughs> and that's not my jam yeah so <laughs> should, should, we, should we just go through the things that I wrote down when yeah, I was reading? so I mean I did find something that's this novel and as you're talking about yours I'll probably be able to comment on them but I um Nicole came in today saying I have all these things I want to talk about and I was like I don't got any feelings. <laughs> like, I read it. Yeah. It was a thing. I mean, and there's a couple of things, but let's let you kind of guide okay. it since you had a lot more you were thinking as you were reading, and maybe it'll draw it out of me. Okay. All right. Number one, um, the main character, the author, Bill, he is a terrible person. He's an alcoholic. He's on pills. He treats people badly. Abandoned he uses people. Yeah. He's terrible, but it's like he's done it he's withdrawn from society and become that person because he thinks that's what the writing needs and that to really be a writer you have to be isolated and hide from your fame and i and it just basically it's like writing is an excuse to be a terrible person and he's i find him so unlikable well and and gross that's why i said my two word or my two word description (laughs) was publicized isolation because he isolated himself but because that was a writer what a writer is supposed to be but then it's like all writers are supposed to be like that so it's like a it's intentionally based off of what he was getting from other people I don't know I felt like it was just not did not go together did not compute the way he had decided to become in this isolation and what had happened because of it also I found it really disgusting that when he's with the terrorists they say we knew you would understand this because writers are the only people who understand the pain like this and can understand this anger. Did you oh, catch that? Yeah, that's I mean, that's the next thing I was going to bring up, yeah. because I think that's the main plot of the book is that fundamentally the author is proposing that terrorism is replacing writing and the arts mm-hmm. as the main factor that shapes our society and that terrorists and writers are the most similar Mm -hmm. kinds of people um and that the reason that the author bill is despairing is because he as a writing is writer is losing the ability to shape the nat the converse worldwide conversation because now it's in the power of terrorists to do all that shaping of our our worldwide conversation which i it's interesting (laughs) because this book came out 10 years before 9 11 Uh uh-huh and they, so there were a lot of mentions of the two towers in this book. Yeah, which was weird and like Twin towers. right. And um and it's like we were just babies when this book came out basically. We're really young. And so I don't know what terrorism was like then and all, but obviously it was like at the end of the cold the cold war was just ending and so it, was, it should have been going fear terrorism when my mind was probably Gulf going war. down at that time. Gulf war. Was yeah, but that wasn't because 90s? of terror that wasn't because of terrorism. But it was a fear of Middle Eastern people, but yeah. not terrorists. They not, that was just a war, True. two countries against each other. Three True, countries. but then I guess I just related it to that because this had scenes in the Middle East well, where they're talking about yeah. terrorism, but am I doing that because that's... Yeah, I couldn't decide if this author was really forward-thinking, and that's why there's so much terrorism in this book, because he was foreseeing a future which turned out to be true where terrorism is a big issue, or if he was just like really pessimistic about the state of the world and that even I think his view that terrorisms are the only thing shaping our culture is still not true even now when I feel like there's more frequent terrorist attacks than there were then I I just something about that makes me feel sick that like like that he's saying that terrorism is the most profound voice in our world I 
I feel like I fundamentally disagree with it because of the reason he said he like says it as if terrorism sorry terrorism is the thing that's shaping our world because writers can no longer have power when people can see real terrorism in action and real terrible right. things happening and I because of like 24-hour news media I and stuff. fundamentally disagree that seeing terrorism on 24-hour news media which I think we should talk about that in a minute because I do think he is alluding to that that's coming a little bit, but um, I don't think that removes the power of art or books yeah. or written media um, in any way, shape, or form. And so while I do think that terrorism has shaped the way a lot of the world acts now, I do not think that it has taken away all power from other forms of expression right or i mean it's not a form of expression from form from forms of expression yeah and so i like i fundamentally disagree with his point here (laughs) yeah i marked one passage where um bill says that um stories have no point if they don't absorb our terror so he's saying that writing about things isn't enough because we're experiencing terror in real life but it is weird because it, it causes like a I have like a visceral offended reaction to that like statement, um, even though I can't totally I can't argue it away. I, but I still find it very offensive because and I just hate the I. And then so then in the book, the author goes to try to stop an act of terrorism to free a hostage. And eventually he's going to go and like change places with the hostage. Eventually it, it devolves in that. And then he dies on the way there. And so he can't do it. And the, ho- and the hostage doesn't get rescued. And, and he's, he, the reason he's involved at all is because a group of book people, publishers are trying to form a group where they're going to rescue writers that have been kidnapped and journalists. And um, because that's the way they can have a voice in the world. And I think it, a, it disregards that the way that we need writers in the world in a world where there's terrorism is to tell the story mm-hmm. so that people can digest it, not in a way that's just from the 24-hour CNN yeah. or Fox News that is real. And But then I also don't like it because he doesn't – he talks all about terrorism in this book, backwards and forwards, but he never talks about, like, what makes somebody become a terrorist mm-hmm. or, like, the conditions where they're brought up because of Western interventions, because, you know, because of – all these other factors that like led to a situation where it's just that terrorists are bad and it's her and, and authors aren't good enough to stop them anymore. And so terrorism is dominant. Yeah. And it felt like, um, as you were talking, I, it felt like he like was, he was giving a lot of power that doesn't belong to terrorists to terrorists in this story. Like, he, yeah, he was giving them, <clears throat> the power to control everything and saying that um, he had no voice anymore. But it was interesting because I do feel like he made some interesting points about terrorism. Um, Mm -hmm. I just didn't agree with his overall message. So I thought there was one point in this story where he said, uh, where he's talking with the news guy who pulled him over to, try and save this person um, who's been kidnapped and they there's a bomb threat so they all leave the building and while they're waiting to find out if it's a real bomb or not they're having this discussion about you know is it a threat or is it real and where's the real power in that is the power in those threats the fact that they they can make people leave like where Mm -hmm. what are what are terrorists um, deriving from this and I thought that was a really cool conversation yeah um 
And I thought he made some really, really cool points about how um, the 24-hour news cycle can really deaden our reactions to things because at one point Britta, um, it's either Britta or Karen, I can't remember which character, is watching the news on repeat. I think it's Karen, is watching the news for days and days and it kind of just goes through the things she sees on the news. And it talks about that feeling that I feel terrible, but I feel like many people have this feeling that when you see a news line come across the bottom, you have that like... (gasps) gut kind of um adrenaline reaction Mm -hmm. um for breaking news that you we wouldn't have if we didn't have a 24 hour news cycle like anytime i see breaking news come up on the screen and half the time it's something dumb like my whole body has a very visceral Mm, like yeah reaction to it because i've been primed that that means something bad and that there's going to be something tragic and then it's like watching the train wreck where you feel bad for watching it Mm -hmm. but you're still stuck watching it um and i feel like there was some really good points about that in here that were kind of ahead of their time because i don't think in 91 he knew that terrorism or the idea of terrorism was going to be so prevalent and such a big conversation on all of our news channels. Yeah. But I don't agree with his point. So I like, I can't, I yeah. couldn't give any value to those things I really liked because I'm like, because you were saying them to make a point that I don't agree with. Yeah. That's totally what it is. Cause I think he was thinking ahead of his time or whatever, mm-hmm. but then his overall point is still like fear mongering and pessimism and and I think exaggerates the case like way far about like the power of those things. And I think it's like those kind of beliefs are what enable governments to do really terrible things mm-hmm. to fight those those groups. Um, you know, like we could huge atrocities, you know, because if you by stirring up the fear of terrorism, you can you can do a lot of bad things. And I think, too, they um, this book almost felt like it sometimes was giving permission to feed into that because that's an inevitability yeah um which i don't agree with either no but let's talk about so the book is called mal the second and throughout the book threaded in is is, um both uh like the ideals of the terrorist group that is in the book of fictional terrorist group Mm -hmm. in lebanon um that people need to have one supreme leader Mm -hmm. and mindlessly and without their own identity at all no individualism follow that person and that they really praise Mao as a leader who did that and who reinvented himself in the press and who realized like that's the best state for human beings and then had success in turning China Mm -hmm. into that and is still even now worshipped like long after his death that that um that that is like was a great thing and then that Bill the author and Mao like share a lot in common I'm going to read one passage um Let's see. Now Bill was devising his own cycle of death and resurgence. It made Scott think Scott think of great leaders who regenerate their power by dropping out of sight and then staging messianic returns. Mao Zedong, of course. Mao was pronounced dead many times in the press, dead or senile or too sick to run a revolution. Um da-da. Yeah, and then it goes on to say like how he yeah. he oh he was like swam nine miles when he was in his seventies to show that he still had vigor. And I think it's really interesting to think about Mao as a figure because I don't know that much about him. But um, when Mao was the leader of China, there was famine, uh-huh. <laughs> millions of people died as a result of his policies, and it's like 
I don't know if in China now, real people on the ground actually think he was a good guy. They could easily think he was terrible, but they don't have the freedom to express mm-hmm. that because of their current government. Um, and so it's, but it's interesting to think, I never really made that connection between how that type of leadership would trickle down to modern day mm-hmm. terrorists and to- from totally different cultures. Well, and they yeah. too, they look at the, um, during this, this, the course of this book, it references real events that were taking a part in time when this book was happening. Mm-hmm. So it references the Ayatollah, Ayatollahs, Ayatollah Khomeini, the first um, one, yeah. death in mm-hmm. 1989. So that's when this book is taking place and how, um, people are trying to like jump all over his coffin to touch his shroud as if it's going to be a sign of good luck and peace and that kind of devotion too. So it looks at Mao and it looks at that too, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. As and well. it's so, it's so hard to know, like, because as Americans we're taught very negatively about those figures. And mm-hmm. so it's hard to, we don't have the education to be able to pick out what was good and what was bad. <laughs> you know, we, we've been taught that they're bad. And so, but obviously people followed them for a reason, but we don't, it's, I just feel like, from our perspective, it's pretty hard. Like it's even though Americans are supposed to think that the revolution in Iran is a hundred percent bad, mm-hmm. and obviously some things about it are bad, some yeah. things about about everything, but maybe there were some good things. But we would never know what those things were because our perspective is totally different. Yeah, I know it's interesting. <laughs> yeah. I thought that those references were really um, interesting to read about because I just haven't thought about that before. Like how. And then mixed in with the Mooney cult and that devotion. And I think maybe my takeaway, which I'm not sure wasn't his intended takeaway, <laughs> I don't think it was, was that um, full devotion to anything is not good. Like, yeah. it's not healthy. Um, her, the Karen's obsession w- when she got into that cult and then not being able to break out of it and still kind of preaching to it even years later mm-hmm. um, was not healthy. Um, Scott... Yeah, his name Scott's devotion to Bill was very a stalkerish. He was a stalker. Yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. He like hunted him down, even though Bill was a recluse, by like getting a job so that he could pick up the mail that he was sending. It was bad. Yeah. Um, how- and then he doesn't want Bill to publish his book. He wants to control him. Yeah. So it's like it's so very stalkery. Really yeah. unhealthy. Um, Bill's like devotion and ideology about why he needs to be isolated and the power of his words or the lack of power. Like all I got from this novel is that like full devotion to anything, blind devotion to anything is unhealthy. Well, it's interesting because I I think that was the author's point. It was that blind devotion to anything is unhealthy and it's inevitable. That's where our society is heading. Uh, Because if you read the introduction, it's all about the book is supposed to be all about, or maybe I read it online if there is an introduction there. There is no introduction. uh, You keep referencing an introduction. I'm like, there is. So I read an article about the book (laughs) online, apparently. It's all, the book is about, it references crowds a lot Uh and and like groupthink. And so I think he's saying that that's the way our society is heading and it's nothing we can do about it because even the arts, which are supposed to save us from inhumanity, aren't saving us anymore. Which... I mean, I just am too much of an optimist that yeah. that rubs me the wrong way. And I just think it sounds like something a, someone very bitter would say. I don't and know. And I feel like giving, even if, God forbid that's true, giving in to something like that and having that be your like view of looking at life 
is also unhealthy, but also leaves it so that you're not even going to try anything. Yeah, and then what's the point of being alive? <laughs> Which is kind of what happened to the character Bill in the novel. He just stops trying things. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I just... I don't like super pessimistic yeah, narratives. Um, it's not even just pessimistic. It's almost, what's the word for it when it's like, is it nihilistic? Yeah. Nihilistic, yeah. Um, there was one, this is obviously a dark book. There was one dark scene that I marked because I thought it was really funny um, <laughs> and how dark it was. Yeah. So Bill, when he's on this mission to try and save this journalist who's been um, kidnapped, he gets hit by a car in a busy city street and he has internal liver damage, but he doesn't know. And there's this scene where he's like starting to not feel well. And he's sitting at a cafe and he notices that there's vets next to him. And so he like, is like, I'm an author. I'm researching this story. What would you say this would be if someone got hit by a car and they were having pain here and the vets have no idea. And they're like, Oh, well, it's you should make it this. He should cough up blood and it would be the kidney. And Bill's like, no, no, he can't cough up blood because Bill's not coughing up blood. He's <laughs> like, it has to be on this side and it has to be on the front for literary reasons. <laughs> but really, he's like researching what's going to happen to him. And it's it's really dark because events end up concluding that his liver is lacerated. And if he doesn't go to a doctor, he's going to fall into a coma and die. Which is what happens. And <laughs> Which is what happens because he refuses to go to the doctor. But I just thought it was like, great dark comedy like yeah. the vets are just having this fun time they're having all these drinks they're like we don't treat humans but let me tell you about it oh yeah dogs have a spleen if they didn't i would have been making a deal on these spleenectomies like it was great yeah that part was really good <laughs> uh, my favorite like image in the book is that there's a part where karen keeps going to homelessness encampments in new york city and she's preaching to them about the mooney mm-hmm. mooney's religion and but she and but she and she also like is watching a lot of like cable news of refugee camps. And then she she basically says that the our homelessness camps are refugee camps, uh-huh. which I think is spot on yeah. imagery. It's so good. And we should think about it that way. We should think about the support that people need in the same way, um, the desperation in the same way, you know, because yeah. um, the same way that refugees in a refugee camp would prefer always the first option is to resettle them in their home country. You know, and that we're settling them in a, in a third part in or in the country where the camp is and then th- last chance in another country. Right. Mm-hmm. That's the smallest amount. Do that because we they, they, people don't want to do it. And the U.N. doesn't want people to do that. Yeah. Right. And the same thing is that people who are homeless want to be resettled, rehoused in, in where in where they came from. You know, I just I thought that was like the best. Like the whole book could have been about that. And I would have been like, this is a great book. Yeah. Really necessary and <laughs> needed for society. Yeah. I. <laughs> Also, the other thing that is interesting is that after I finished the book and I was like, what was the war that was going on in Lebanon at this time? And did you know that there was civil war in Lebanon from 1975 until like the mid-90s? No. Didn't even know that. Me neither. And it started because um, like... Lots of Palestinian refugees were free, been freeing, fleeing Israel, mm-hmm. and then like Israel attacked Lebanon, and then there was like, but then there's all these groups, different Palestinian groups, and then Lebanese groups, and then before that, Lebanon had been like had a Christian and Muslim like majority, mm-hmm. like very close, and they had like equal seats in their parliament and stuff, but then there started to be like 
more divided and then all these different militias representing different religions and as more Palestinians fled then the Muslim majority grew and so then the Christians felt like threatened and then they started fighting and it took for like 30 years I didn't know that did you know that and then and Israel like bombed them because I knew that Israel had massacred Palestinian refugees in Lebanon in the 70s but they like bombed the shit out of of Lebanon and Beirut was just like totally leveled oh yeah I didn't know before this either that Mao did have Maoist like groups that were in other countries that were trying to take power. Yeah, at the same time, yeah. Mm, Lebanon was not on the Wikipedia list. Not that Wikipedia is like... No. But when I was reading about it, there was a whole list of countries hmm. that had Maoist groups in them that kind of acted as terrorists in those prospective well, countries yeah. trying to... Um, yeah, terrorists, freedom fighters, depends on your yeah. revolutionaries. Well, and it depends on the country they were in, yeah. too, and how you feel about Mao. Yeah, and like, that, why do you think the West was so afraid after China became communist? Because it did feel at the time like there was going to be this huge wave of communism even though that didn't happen and when you just said that terrorist freedom fighters that it's very interesting because this whole like we've used the word terrorist a lot in this episode but i really would like someone to define for me what what they think we use we should be using as what is a terrorist like what is the definition of that Formally, because oftentimes people who are terrorists, they wouldn't think yeah. they're not. Yeah, most of the time. I most of the time, I would say all the time. I say at, at yeah. minimum, like revolutionaries. Yeah, but really, they're just so, like they're political groups, armed political groups. Like yeah, I just it's interesting because, yeah. yeah, how that that terminology terrorist has evolved and what that actually means. Yeah, is is hard. Yeah, I it's a very loaded word. It's very. Loaded and I think word. it's very hard in a post nine eleven United States. Yeah. To really come to a definition of that without having a visceral reaction, especially if you were alive during 9-11 and you watched the news and you watched all the fallout from that and everything, you think it's, it's very hard for it to not be an emotional thing, which I think is common in almost all European countries now too. And in many, um, I say European because it's what's on our news. I, I know there's terrorist acts in basically every country in the world. But I feel like there's a lot of emotion attached to that word, too. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah. It's the same, like, it's loaded. Yeah, it's just, I don't remember what I was going to say. Yeah, it's too, it's too loaded. It's like we need a, we need a fresh term that's more open. Mm-hmm. Um, that, yeah, it doesn't have people have these visceral reactions. Um, so I definitely know how I'm going to vote on this book. Do you? And I have a reason. I I, I know how I'm going to vote. I'm not sure if it's going to stick, but I know how I'm going to vote. Okay. So we're going to say, is this a book that every person on earth should read before they die? One, two, three. Yes. No. Oh. Mine is a question mark. Do you okay. want to give your reason first? Sure. So I'll go first. So, um, so for me, it's a no because I feel like this book did generate really good discussion. Mm-hmm. Um. And and it was like not terrible to read. It was readable and it made me think. And, and I think I might still think about it even down the road. But I think this book in the wrong hands, in the hands of a person oh. who is pro, pro war on terror, Republican, not all Republicans are, but obviously a specific type of person who mm. is really afraid of terrorism. This book only encouraged them in those beliefs of hatred of other people and fear of the unknown and fear of the strange and different cultures. 
in a way that I think should be discouraged. We should be discouraging. And because it's so pessimistic that I just think that it, sh- it people don't need to read it because I think it would have some people would have a bad reaction to this and it would only encourage them in their in their like xenophobia. Interesting because I put it on the list <laughs> for the opposite reason oh. because I think as someone who um, who tries really hard to be optimistic about our society and who tries really hard to be empathetic and to find and understand people's reasoning for every choice that they make. Um, I think it's important to be reminded how easily it is, how easy it is for normal people to be drawn into that all encompassing belief in something. And I think this book does a good job, even if I don't agree with it, of showing many versions of all encompassing belief And I think you can see in this novel that none of them are good, but I get what you're saying because we basically put it on the list or not on the list for opposite ends of the same thing that this book says. Yeah. So it's like a double-edged sword. Absolutely. When you're talking, it's like, oh, yeah, it could do that. Yeah. So we'll have to see. We we review the books every 20. So when we get to book 40, we'll review and see if we want to change up what we put on the list. We'll have to see what this one and falls. And we definitely disagree a lot more now. We, like, yeah, this is like the third or the fourth one that where we've been a split decision. Yeah. Yeah. Which well, is kind of fun. Yeah. When, yeah. This is the fourth one. Because I've never heard you say like, I don't want it on the list or I do want to listen to like, oh, no, I can't understand why you did that. I always understand it. It's just yeah, me. it's a, it's always it's we're always like it's always in the middle because most of the time we're like absolutely not or definitely. Yeah. 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 Well, I thought for our next segment, I this book made me think a lot about another book that I really love. So I was going to tell you about it. Yes. Have you ever read anything by Lisa C? Joy Luck Club. You know, when we were looking up the titles, I don't think she's the one who wrote that. That book was written by Amy Tan. Oh, Amy Tan. I love her, too. So we, two Chinese-American yeah. immigrants. Then. Yes. So Lisa C., the first book I read by her, was called um, Snowflower and the Secret Fan, which was set in ancient mm-hmm. China. And it's so good. Like, you can read it in one sitting. I'm it's pretty amazing. sure I've read that one. And it's about, like, two best friends. Yeah. Yeah. And then as over the course of their life. I'm pretty sure I've read that one. But the books that this book made me think about is a duology and the first one is called Shanghai Girls and the second one is called Dreams of Joy so Shanghai Girls is is about two sisters leaving China during World War II when it's like being occupied by Japan and stuff and getting to America and then everything that happens to them um and and of course that book one of them has a daughter and the other one pretends it's her blood daughter because the other sister isn't married okay but they're, but they're both really mothering this girl together because they have to marry um, people they don't know in order to get interested in the United States who have like papers. Yeah. And uh, and so then and but then in Dreams of Joy, the daughter who's like a Chinese American, she was born in America and she feels disconnected from China. And so at the after right at the end of World War Two, she goes back to China to be connected to her roots right when China is becoming communist. And so then she becomes, and so right when it's like they've closed off the West, they can't, her family can't contact her. They can't find her. And she's just in China and it's, and she stayed because she fell in love with a guy in a village. And she was just like, this is my true roots. This is the life I'm supposed Uh to live. And she's living in this village. But then the cultural revolution is happening and there's like, they're starving, you know? And so then her mom goes to China amidst all this bad danger to try to find her and get her out because she's a U.S. citizen. And it's really good. And it's the only thing I've ever really read that 
is about um, what it was like in a village during the Cultural Revolution when they were like forcing them to farm in this way and farm collectively and uprooting all these things that were thousands and thousands of year old cultural mm-hmm. standards and that they had um, to be the same. And, and then and also like really showing the way Mao like could not be questioned and like the fervor of people in following him. Yeah. It's really good. I highly recommend it that both of both the books are the one the first one is great, but the second one is really, really, really good. good. It yeah. sounds amazing. Yeah. And so yeah, and I've I've read only I've haven't read her most recent book, which is called like The Tea on Hummingbird Lane or mm-hmm. something. But only her other book I read, Peony and Love, I didn't like as much. Mm-hmm. Um a lot of her books have kind of like some mystical edge like part of them that tied I into chinese background one, didn't it? Did, yes didn't it? Yeah. and then in the peony and love it's based on an ancient chinese poem and there's like ghosts and stuff in it oh uh but yeah she i really love her and i'm looking forward to reading her new book nice mm-hmm. well i know that was a little bit shorter of an extra segment but hopefully i feel like i could hold heartedly recommend Snowflower and the Secret Fan and it sounds like you could wholeheartedly recommend Shanghai Girls and Dreams of Joy. Dreams of Joy. So while we half heartedly are like meh about Mao too, those are both great books. Yes. <laughs> In which uh, you will also learn something about China. Yeah. So that is feels like a book recommendation we could stand behind much more. Yes. Should we draw what our book thirty should be? Yes. That's a pretty big one. Dun da 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 what is it, Chelsea? It is The House of Seven Gables by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Oh, my gosh. I'm saying it in a sing-song <sighs> voice because Nicole hates The Scarlet Letter with, so like, an undying I mean, I said on the podcast that would be a book that I would shred. So, I yeah, I hate that book so bad, uh, and I would never touch another Nathaniel Hawthorne book without ha, this forcing me you to. You lied. <laughs> Yeah, pretty I, pretty bummed about it. Pretty not it's excited. Short. It's only like two hundred pages, I think. Thank God. <laughs> um, and the audiobook, since I already let you all know that I got the audiobook, the audiobook narrator, I listened to like the first three minutes. He's great. Okay. So there is that. You should listen to it on audiobook. You can listen to it on a one point five speed. <laughs> well, I just I feel like when I listen to audiobooks, I it can't be a really serious descriptive book because I can't concentrate well, on it. Well, then you're in trouble. So <laughs> I, might, I might have to read this one. I read, uh, yeah, but we'll see how it goes. Um, maybe, yeah. maybe this will be just be like, why? Maybe at the end of this will be like, why isn't this the one they make you read in high school? This one's so much better. Maybe, That's possible. I mean, the premise of this one's pretty cool. So we'll have to see. We'll talk about it next week. Until then, make sure that you follow us on our social medias. On Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at 1001BooksPod and on Litzy at 1001BooksPodcast. You can also Gmail, email us at gmail.com at 1001BooksPodcast at gmail.com. <laughs> <laughs> um, but until next time, happy, happy reading! reading.